Welcome to Have Hope Will Travel. I'm your host, Katie Axelson. Here at Have Hope Will Travel, we love to get to know people. We love to hear their stories. We love to travel. Doesn't mean it's always easy, though. So what does it look like to be able to build conversations with people where we can hear their stories? Today, we've got a guest who's going to teach us some of the tricks she's learned on how to do just that. Jessica Stone is an author. She's a journalist. She's a mother. She's a global adventurer. And today, she's inviting us into her kitchen to teach us how to travel. Be sure to connect with Jessica at jessica-stone.com and check out her book, Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you are taking this time out of your cooking and your life and everything to share a little bit about your story with us. Thanks for having me. It's uh, You have a very uh, special spot in my heart for the topics that you cover because I think oh. those are pretty rocking. So oh. uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you coming on because I know we're a smaller podcast than we, what you're used to. So I appreciate um, your time and energy with that. Shameless. I will, I want to talk to everybody that will listen. So no worries. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know if that's well, a good way to put it, but <laughs> thank you. Hey, effort. that sounds great. Jessica, why don't we start? Will you share with us a little bit about your story, who you are? You're an author, you're a journalist, you're a global adventurer. Um, how did you get to where you are? Um, I, I am a naturally very curious person drawn to di- diverse uh, sort of environments that are inherently contradictory just because I was raised in a home that had a Jewish convert to Christianity and a Catholic convert to evangelical Christianity. And then I was raised in the deep South by two Yankees. So there were a lot of layers of dissonance. And I, I, I think I don't think it's unusual to feel like you don't fit in, but I really feel like I didn't fit in. And I almost started to, I started to embrace that fairly young and just try to hold on to different, you know, I kept my y'all when we moved to the, to Michigan and I kept my pop when we moved to Pennsylvania um, cause they call it soda there and just kind of trying to, you know, figure out my identity in the context of that. And, um, that led to a passion for journalism, which was sort of solidified in high school when I realized I love to be in front of people, and um, but I want to be myself, not someone else, because prior to that, I had thought I wanted to be an actress. And um, then went to journalism school at Syracuse University and lived in France during that period of time and, and interned at a French television station, came back and did local news and then uprooted to go, come to Washington because I was sort of over it. And that's, that was really the part of my life that I came here at 28 and I had a lot of adventures after that because in part, because I needed to make money and in part because I had the flexibility, I didn't have any property or people uh, tying me down and um, just traveled the world telling stories for a couple of years and um, then took a job with the Chinese television network for eight years, uh, seven years really, but close to eight. And that also enabled me to travel extensively in Asia and really gave me a lot of interesting insights into Chinese culture, which I think are very relevant to people's lives today in our country in particular, but also globally, because this is the century that I really believe more of us that are not Chinese are going to need to work with and 
for Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting. I was reading an excerpt from your book last night when you were talking about China was actually the excerpt I was reading last night. Um, and I spent three weeks teaching English in China right out of college. Okay. So some of your stories were familiar. Um, I don't remember the number of times Eva, my host, like yanked me off the off the street because it wasn't safe to cross. And she's like, you can't get damaged on my watch. <laughs> um, and like trying to protect me and just the beautiful things in that. And then you were talking about the. They would have um, put you down. They oh, yeah. 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 You're I like, thought I had time to cross. And she was like, no, you definitely don't. <laughs> yeah. No. And there was there would be absolutely no sense of, oh, my gosh, I hurt somebody because mm-hmm. there are so many people there that life just has a different, I would argue, they may be offended by this, but I would argue life, it doesn't have the same value because there's just sure. people. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I'd never thought about that, but it makes me wonder. Um, and one was, of the things- I was six yeah. months pregnant trying to cross the street in Beijing sure. and they, it was the same thing. Even if you were in the crosswalk, yeah. it didn't matter. There no, was another thing is like my right, you know, uh, nope. right to cross. California nope. must be very confusing for Chinese people <laughs> have a, an actual pedestrian right at Bill of Rights. Right? No, right. no, no, no. No, no. And then you cross one lane at a time and you stand on the median or the lane, the lane marker until it's safe to cross the next lane. Yeah. Which terrifies my mother. Yeah. One of the other interesting thoughts just in thinking about like different cultures and all the things that are socially acceptable in China that we are appalled by here in the United States just because we don't understand necessarily. One of the things my host was amazed by is daylight savings time. Mm. She's like, how can the American government have the authority just to change the time? Oh, that's kind of ironic since her government has the right to do way more than that. That's what I've always thought. Uh Yeah. But see, yeah, what she may not know is that in in the interior of China, they're still on Beijing time and they would argue that they should be on their own Central Asian time. And it's actually a a, it was it happened under communism. It wasn't always like that. Sure. Um, So, yeah, she may. But but that's that's what I talk about. For me, it was very. I, I believe that we don't know our whole history in, in, in the West by any means, and it's definitely been influenced by the people who write it. But I would argue that there's a little bit more loyalty to cons- some consistency in truth-telling than, um, because it's not as agenda-focused. It is agenda-focused, but it's not one agenda-focused, You could, I think you could argue. Whereas the Communist Party really has a lock on what people learn and, and when they learn it. And they continue to change what they teach as their country's history and identity, depending on what they want to achieve with that generation. It's it's mind blowing to me. And it's interesting, just the things that we could say and the things that we couldn't say. Um, as, as English teachers, because we were there as guests of the government, and so we were in a position of authority and there were things we couldn't do simply because of who had invited us to China. I know you've just cut out our prior conversation, but the but the concept of religion is actually something that Chinese people are incredibly curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even in China, and so um, and some of my Chinese friends actually said that they were very aggressively evangelized to, and they found it kind wow. of um, conf- too confrontational. But um, but yeah, there are a lot of interesting, and, and that's also changed um, depending on the power of the Communist Party, how much gathering can happen and how much, um, because there, I've been told by some people that they like the, the things that youth groups achieve. For example, societally, those children are, are often more um, respectful of authority and 
leadership and mm-hmm. and they're all, they're off drugs and they're you know they have a sense of community mm-hmm. um, but it's not in communism it's in something right. else and so that part is dangerous but the the ends for some leaders from some for some mm-hmm. administrations prior to Xi Jinping those things were not as so yeah I don't know what it's like now I haven't been back since 2019 sure um, and it changes yeah. so quickly that you know I, I can't call myself an authority <laughs> right no it does change so quickly my trip was there in 2011 and Mm. one thing i will never forget was being in a chinese christian church what hu jintao so i i would i would i'm sure if you talk to the same people now their experience is incredibly different from oh i'm sure it is do it i'm i'm absolutely sure it is what was fascinating to me at one of the chinese christian churches that we went to the sermon was not translated for us but we could understand what scriptures they were talking about. So they translated like these are the verses we're talking about. They were talking about Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission. Oh, wow. And I so wish I could have understood that sermon. Yeah. And I'm so sad that I couldn't, but just to know that I heard a sermon on Matthew 28 in China just gives me warm fuzzies. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they'd go there today. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, and I don't know what, what the interpretation was on the scripture because I couldn't understand it. But yeah. to know that's what was being preached um, made me smile. Yeah. So when we think about, let's talk about faith and workplace a little bit. Okay. You are a believer who has a secular job. What does that look like for you? How do you balance those two things? Um, you know, I, I think in the back of my mind, I've probably had a sense where people would, where I thought people weren't necessarily approving of how I balanced it. And you could argue that there were times I did uh, not balance it, um, <laughs> particularly um, early in the in my experience with the Chinese uh, network. I was, I believe, still suffering from a lot of PTSD from my, my time in Afghanistan and just oh, the God. stress of starting a startup with so many different cultures. And I had major anger issues and I totally they were out of control and I was out of control. A lot of people did not appreciate that particularly in an Asian context where you're not supposed to be loud or confrontational, especially as a woman. Um, so I would say, you know, I'm very convicted that, that I did not <laughs> balance those things well at that time. But um, but I have found that what, what even distinguishes um, people of Christian faith and to some measure Jewish and Muslim faith, um, but definitely Christian faith is that we know we're not perfect. We own that we're not perfect and we apologize when we're not. Even as prideful and arrogant as I can be, I try to take the position where, and I did, I would yell at somebody and then go back in tears, you know? So they probably thought I was unhinged, but in my mind, that was also part of repentance and the sort of, you know, the pattern of what I needed to do as a, as a Christian person. How could I treat somebody so poorly and then not be apologetic? Um, now, if you keep doing it, it doesn't leave the <laughs> best taste in, the, in somebody's mouth for your right. beliefs. But I do think that's a difference maker is that um, perfection is not the goal. I think there was definitely a movement in the 80s in particular where you, you know, it was excellence will draw people to ask, why are you excellent? And then you get to talk about your faith. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with seeking to be excellent for that reason. But I think the bigger thing that communicates um, something otherworldly and supernatural to the people around you is your ability to extend grace to them and to yourself. So the more human and the more vulnerable 
which is really hard in a competitive environment. And that's basically the only kind of environment I've ever chosen to be in as a professional. Um, you, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. So trying to remember, and it's not easy, that there's a bigger plan, purpose, and set of things going on around you. And that injustices that you uh, experience, which you will experience, no matter who you are or what you believe in, aren't your um, aren't always your wrong to write. And I'm that's hard for me. I think a lot of why I'm attracted to journalism is I see it as a way to write wrongs and mm. to tell truth. And when truth does not set you free in a glo- in a world context, because mm-hmm. Truth is not acknowledged by the people who set the events in motion that you feel are unjust, or you just can't get a resolution. You can't even get a recognition that you have a valid point. That's hard. And the only place to go at that point is up, mm-hmm. is, is to just say, yeah, I can't, um, oh, got sleepy girls, mm-hmm. uh, is obvious, you know. So I think that the balance there is earn the right to speak mm-hmm. and work on humility, particularly in a competitive context, because it's not something that people feel they can do. And so when they see it in someone else, it does beg a question. Like, I remember reading a Guidepost article about James Earl Jones um, once about him never cussing, never, which in Hollywood, frankly, in a newsroom, unheard of. Like, I can't say that about myself. Um, the fact that there could be an article that was uh, was actually hopefully true that was printed um, in a guidepost magazine um, that that was not ha- I mean that's a tremendous that's a tremendous testimony to what he believes it takes personally and the relationship he has with God so yeah I mean that's a version of of excellence earning the right to to say why you are the way you are and what you believe yeah how has we didn't really talk about this before, but how has like truth telling and journalism changed in this era of quote unquote fake news? A lot. Um, and ironically, first of all, I think we don't have a lot of media that is dedicated to that. We have a lot more media than ever that's dedicated to an agenda. And part of that is because of the commercialization and the money motives behind journalism uh, the corporate mon- money making. I mean, the major networks are all, you know, they're all investable assets on the stock market. So they need to, they need to make a margin that size size Wall Street, and they can't they can't do that in an age of Google and Facebook, which takes viewership away from them without, um, in some cases, advocating. In many cases, and so there's been a shift from, hey, we're going to expose the truth and you make your decision, to, hey, we're going to advocate for a perspective or we're gonna tell you about a lot of injustices and, and, and a lot of injustices, particularly on hot button issues, whether they're political or racial or, um, well, basically those things really, you know, <laughs> those two yeah. things, gender. Um, yeah. You know, you're, you're the, vic- the, the victim mentality sells headlines. And during the Trump administration, having a, an enemy who was in the White House very much sold, sold uh, subscriptions. So there's, the, so there's that, um, and then I think we also have the impact of social media in that um, until the last year of my career, I hadn't worked exclusively in digital journalism, and it was an eye-opener to me to how you move content differently. You don't have the freedom to do good stories in digital journalism um, if you want just eyeballs. 
and you, and particularly if you don't have a brand that people will come to, it was part of a, an effort to try to attract eyeballs to a new brand, um, at least a new brand from a media perspective. And it was very difficult to do good journalism and do that or fair journalism. It's been much more productive for them to do tough fear and greed motivated, uh, topics. So that was an eye opener because, you know, if, if you think about how many people are only getting their news that way or only getting their information that way, that tells you part of why the divide has deepened in our country, not just because people are getting things from sources that may be agreeing with their underlying theses, but because they're going to get more fear and greed motivated information because it, it, it gives a it gives a visceral reaction. It's human to read more of that. And. We've certainly seen that in the pandemic. No, you know, unless you're <laughs> unless you're a small business owner, you're you're not you don't want to hear the economy is opening up. If you're if you know, or you're not going to read as much about that. But now we're now we're fatigued from fear. So now I think we are kind of turning the corner in terms of what we want to read. We want to read more about hope. Um, but that's yeah, that's that's I, I do feel very strongly that we're going in the basis of instincts. And I think what's happening with the public square now being on private servers essentially um internet you know you know there, you can't just throw a paper on somebody's you can but nobody reads it anymore <laughs> somebody's porch you know um most of us are reading most of our information on on uh, a computer or on a mobile phone and we're going to get something different because of how we're consuming information and and so i've, I've written crossing the divide um in part to address cross-cultural issues that I think everybody in every workplace in this country and outside this country needs to be prepared to encounter, but also because truth is actually harder to find in a context where information is changeable the way it is now. Yeah. You think about how easy it is for a journalist to change an article, to edit it without a notation. It's on their honor. And, uh, and a lot of times, it, I mean, I've changed articles without a notation that, that there was an update unless, you know, the WordPress has uh, an update. Yeah. So that's a concern for me. I mean, one, one thing I think all journalists are dedicated to is, is at least I hope so freedom of speech, but we are limited by the platforms that we're on. And that's a concern for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's been one of the, I'm going to use the word fascinating cause I don't know a better term of my Facebook feed. Because as a Christian, I can tell when the Christians are mad about something, and it's usually something the Democrats did. But then I also live in Minnesota, and I have a secular job, and so most of my friends at work are very, very liberal. So I can tell when they're mad about something, and it's usually something the Republicans did. And like right back to back with each other, they're both talking about how much they hate things. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's pretty dissonant, isn't it? It's a very interesting feed, but I can guess, like, if I hear of a politician I've never heard of before, I can tell you what party they're from based on who's mad at them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, they're most, nine times out of 10, and I think I'm, I'm guilty of it too, we just read the headline. So let's talk a little bit about Crossing the Divide. So this is your new book that, when the podcast is released, will have just come out. Tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. The book is 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. And as I said earlier, it's really an effort to put to paper a lot of my own experiences and my learning from those experiences that had invariably been asked of me 
through conversation from various people, especially people who want to go overseas or want to be journalists, um, who have a sense of adventure. Uh, but I also, having worked more for an international uh, television network in the States, really realized how how much more diverse our own country and, and workplaces are becoming. And there are places in this country that don't raise their kids just by virtue of who's around with the, with an understanding of how to relate to those cultures. And I think it's helpful for us to think about that. And we are having an awakening about diversity and inclusion and race and gender, but we also need to have an awakening about culture and diversity of thought and ideology. It's, it is, um, physically exhausting to be in an environment that's going against things you didn't even you didn't even know frequently in culture you don't even know you have the boundaries if you haven't been in that context before that you have with volume of, of speech or gestures or gender or how you're received when you walk into a room what you have to wear to be received well how you need to behave uh, and then that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface with how we perceive truth and history and justice. Um, and I think in some ways, a conversation I had in a Chicago airport lounge on the way home from my last trip with my former employer uh, back from Hanoi, I had just, and it's been two years actually this week that the, the Hanoi summit happened between President Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And I was on my way back and getting something to eat and talk to a man who had done business in a lot uh, in, in Asia for a while. And he said, you know, one of the things I'd love to write about is this con concept that I have that absolute truth does not exist in the East, mm. that it is a concept that's very much underpinned by Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman thought. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I wish I'd met you like 10 years ago because I, <laughs> I didn't realize until he said that how much that helped make sense of my experiences with sure. Eastern in particular, and with communist Eastern cultures in, in, mm -hmm. in specifically. So yeah, it started with that concept of giving people a skill set. And then after January 6th, the attack on the Capitol, there was a broader need to apply those same skills domestically. And I've been talking about that for much of the year as well. I hope I get to talk about both. Um, I think both things are important. But um, you know, there are schools of, of people, especially people of conservative ideology or, or, or um, traditional religion that would say, oh, you can't, um, you can't uh, hide, you know, something of yourself or, or if you meet somebody halfway or you're deferential to their culture, that shows weakness. I would argue the opposite. I think we have biblical examples of Paul, um, you know, being a Gentile to the Gentiles, a Jew to the Jews, uh, a Greek to the Greeks. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm riffing here. It's not, it's not a direct quotation. <laughs> but I think uh, we wouldn't have uh, a Christian, a, a Christendom globally, if we didn't have the ability to be culturally relevant. And some of the best thinking on evangelism has come from a place where culture does not have to change for belief, mm. um, particular with Muslims. There are schools of evangelism where they do not push people out of the, the mosque. They don't push them out of traditional cultural rituals, but they are talking about the person of Isa, which is the, which is Jesus, in a way that that a traditional Muslim does not. And uh, the concept of God is much more full of grace than Allah. 
So I think that's important. I think we have to give people high pumpkin. She's like an escape artist, this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, and I think also, you know, you're kind of seeing my life behind me full. Mm-hmm. And I think motherhood is definitely as my, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and get, get understanding what kind of world they're going to face in terms of ideas and thinking about how I can lay the groundwork for good conversations about ideas and where they come from and understanding them is helpful. It's, is, is a driver for me. Sure. So I know we're not traveling much right now because hashtag pandemic, but what advice do you have for people who are um, engaging in cultures other than their own? Be a student, tell them upfront that you're not going to get it all right, that you are there to learn. Um, I often call people, a te- you know, I say, you're, you're always my teacher. I'm always your student. I'm always learning. I'm going to do things imperfectly. I'm, um, and uh, also set, expe- so you're setting an expectation that you're not going to do things perfectly. I think you also have to set an expectation that there's going to be inherent conflict potential between how you do things and how they do things, um, especially when it comes to authority and how you treat authority, because Americans are kind of anti-authority. And it does not fly in a lot of rest of the world. I mean, Europeans are much more respectful and it's hollowed ground and they're much more, we, we think of our relationship with our government as much more like we keep them accountable. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we're always doing the greatest job of that, but we have, we have a freedom in our culture to be much more critical of the government than many other countries do. And, um, and, and you know, that's that to me, that's a positive, uh, there's plenty of negatives too. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's important to approach people that way. And and it's hard, right? It takes it takes humility to do that. I like to I always like to go in thinking I know something, but the reality is you can't. You just can't. Yeah, and you have to set aside what you think you know to engage in a culture other than your own. Yeah. Because what common sense to you and me may not be common sense in the culture that you're in. It's good to study. I mean, I went into a Chinese culture with no information. I was terribly underprepared for working in a Chinese context. And I didn't really respect, you know, the other thing I think is Americans, it's really critical is we're babies. We are babies. And our country is not built on culture. It's built on an, an idea, an idea about who we are and what we represent. And we get awfully high on our horse and disrespectful of other cultures that have been around for millennia that invented things that we routinely use, like, oh, I don't know, the sundial, uh, the sense of time, the calculators, like paper. A wheel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, come on. We didn't, uh-huh. in- didn't invent a national identity that gives us a lock on how everybody's national identity is supposed to be. I love what we've done. I think it's special and unique, um, mm-hmm. but, re- but, but approach people with respect and approach them with something you know that you've discovered. They will be it is disarming and charming and flattering to approach anybody with a little something. Oh, hey, you know, I like I read this about how you do that. Mm-hmm. When I was in Honduras, we had purchased some chicken and it ended up being a whole chicken and none of us knew what to do with this whole chicken. But we were living at a church and a service had just gotten out and my teammate who was doing the cooking that night had no idea what to do with it. And I was like, go find one of the women standing outside in the courtyard and ask them to help you cook this chicken. And like three women came in, we overcrowded the kitchen. They cooked the whole chicken for us. Like that was not the goal, but we learned so much. They did get raw chicken all over our kitchen sponge, but 
um, that we learned so much just on how to cook this chicken from asking, how do I do this? Yeah. And they appreciated knowing that they had something to teach you too. Absolutely. Which, which was a connection point that you wouldn't have had if you came in like the know-it-all that you might right. have been perceived to be. Yes. And was tempting to be at times. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Especially um, how- that don't have the same services you're used to, like clean sponges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we threw that one away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, how do you respectfully maintain your own identity and culture when you're experiencing a different one? Well, that may go more to knowing who you are and that can be, that's challenging for all of us. But, um, I know that that comes from lesson 20, that question. Um, and what I'm arguing there is that the idea that we have to change who we are and what we believe fundamentally about big existential things like God and how to treat people is not something we have to change to relate to other people. We do need to change how we talk to people um, and we need to extend extend grace uh, to them and to ourselves in those contexts. But I would argue that it's important to realize that I don't have I have to change my religion or my views on the role of women and what they can contribute to a society or the role of work or how hard I want to work just because a culture around me has a different opinion on those. I do need to be respectful. Um, I don't disagree with my Afghan friends and their views on <laughs> on women. Uh, that won't change, but that's, that's where they're coming from. And I'm not going to change it in one you know, in one interaction. Sure. Um, so you, you have to earn the right to have, through relationship, to have the conversation about where the disagreement lies. And you don't, earn, you don't earn that through, I'm right, you're wrong, out of the gate. Right. That's good. How do you maintain relationships with people all around the globe? Oh, my gosh. I'm <laughs> conversation with a friend who's in the National Security Council in Afghanistan in like a few minutes after this. And yeah. what's up? I mean, what did we do before? Yeah. Now, the problem is that when the, when the Trump administration banned WeChat, I have really had a hard time communicating with all my Chinese friends sure. and colleagues. Um, they, many of them do have Facebook uh, or an email um, because they have uh, VPNs. What's the spelling out? Uh, um VPN just allows you to access the internet from a different location where you physically are. VPN stands for, that was going to try to remember, but yeah, but thank you for that explanation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, most people have a VPN so they can get around the the great firewall in China. That said, we've put our own firewall in and, and it's been a loss to me to know what's going on in China, particularly during the pandemic with that being banned because they are not allowed to use WhatsApp. They are not, what it just doesn't work in China. And, um, and WhatsApp is free and great. And I've got pictures of, from France and Afghanistan. And yeah, so that and and then actually, ironically to me, um, I got off Facebook for a while, but Facebook is much more used with my, and that's not a generational thing like it is in our country. Old people and young people from all over the world seem to use Facebook far more than Twitter to talk with each other and share pictures and share stories and um so those two things, I think, even more than like LinkedIn, which I love, um, <clears throat> are really good ways. And then, you know, every time you come 
every time they come, I want them to look me up. I want to help them if they're seeking a visa or some kind of internship or fellowship um, because they've helped, especially my Afghan friends. I mean, they've been, I've known them for 10 years and we're not super close, but they know they can call on me and, and many other journalists too, because a lot of them have a lot of journalist friends. Um, but just making sure to offer that uh, because they've given me so much. I mean, they'll drop, I feel like they'll drop everything to tell you about their culture or what's going on in their government mm -hmm. or what's happening with, with security. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that's a, that's a gift to me because I want to know those things and I can't, I'm not in a position to know those things otherwise. Right. Yeah. People will have to read your book, Crossing the Divide, to hear about your journey in Afghanistan because that is a fascinating story. Yeah, that, uh, um, if I didn't have a strong faith before then, I certainly did afterwards because mm -hmm. while I wasn't very spiritual <laughs> for those two months, <laughs> um, I definitely feel like I experienced the power of the prayers of the people that were praying for me and it made people around me grow spiritually, mm -hmm. um, particularly my mom, who didn't realize how much fear she had of, sure. of one of her children um, until I decided that it was a good idea to go into the firing line to tell stories without any backing or sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, as a freelance journalist. <laughs> Let me go get on a, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm grateful I'm still standing. I read that story and I was like, I do not have that kind of gumption, but I respect it a lot. Yeah, you might if you, I mean, just, just some of it was just naivete and also that it was like, I, I don't know which, which chapter I sent you in the abstract, but um, other people were doing it. And sure. there, you know, I've actually, we this time with this book has been so great because I've been reaching out to people from all parts sure. of my previous lives. And, um, you know, most, most of them came back. There are a couple who have been injured journalists mm -hmm. and then a lot of soldiers, of course, who've been course. very injured. Uh, but noticeably Afghanistan and even the soldiers I went to Walter Reed with, when they would come back, I would take them to Walter Reed to see people that they'd sure. served with. And it was also a way for me to see them. And I, sometimes that was a, a way to tell somebody's story that I wouldn't have met otherwise. Right. Um, they made an interesting, um, observation, uh, that, the injuries were so much less severe from Afghanistan than they were from Iraq because of the change in vehicles. They had the up-armored Humvees, and then they moved to much heavier equipment for Afghanistan, and it was saving lives. People would come back without a limb, but they wouldn't come back without a life. Sure. Sure. And it was a huge, I mean, it was visceral for people that I was taking to visit. They were like, wow, people are, people are making it. Um, wow. So that was an interesting observation. Yeah. Didn't that go is to a really interesting observation. Safe. Um, I mean, none of it's safe, but right. oddly enough, I felt like I I wasn't as crazy as as some. Good. In Afghanistan. Yeah. So if people want to read the rest of the Afghanistan story or hear more about what we've been chatting about today, where can we find you online? Um, please come to my website, jessica-stone.com, and please order or ask for a pre-order there. Uh, the book uh, should be out by the time this hits the air. So you should be able to find a link there. Um, it's a very affordable book. It's a very readable book and it's designed not to be academic or super uh, highbrow, but something that you can mm -hmm. read in a weekend um, or on the beach uh, with a brewski in your hand, with your feet in the water, like the country song says. Um, and, and hopefully pick up some tips that'll be helpful. I think I want this to be something you feel comfortable giving to people that are 
early on in their professional careers, people that are in school or grad school, people that are interested in Peace Corps, State Department, or Amer even AmeriCorps, um, or serving the military or intelligence services. But also just the idea that, listen, our country is getting uh, much, and much, much, much more diverse in every kind of way. And uh, these are important skills. And if you're a person of faith, uh, this is good for missionaries and people that are serving as English teachers and missionaries overseas. And, and something that I think we all need to do more of in our own country and, and in our churches, because we're what are they? What? Who is it that said it's the most segregated time of Sunday morning? Was is the? Yeah, I've heard uh, that. We need, you know, we need to be able to talk to, um, and I'm grateful now to be in a church where uh, we actually have a Spanish, and now we have a Thai or Lao, no, Lao service. So I have oh. a lot of Chinese and Laotian and Cambodian and Korean people in in where I live, and. Uh, yeah, it's phenomenal. I love that's that's one of the great and you have a lot of diversity in, in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of conflict because of that diversity, too. I mean, that's true. <laughs> covered the Somalis uh, quite a yes. bit, covered the Hmong. Um, but um, it's yeah, it's just listen, like if you think you have something important to say, you, you're, go you're going to want to say it in a way people can hear it. And that doesn't change the message, just like it doesn't change your identity. Mm -hmm. doesn't change the message it it is a way of making sure the message is heard actually yeah yeah absolutely and I feel like we all love to travel I mean that's the whole point of have hope will travel right is to get to know people who are different than we are and to hear different stories and so you're a woman who's gotten to experience those different stories and now you're offering us both the stories and the insight that have come from it so thank you very much for writing the book I appreciate it Oh, gosh, my pleasure. It was fun to relive those wacky days and, <laughs> and right. cross some of the things that I needed to learn that I wish I'd learned. That's one other thing I want to say. Okay. This might me go out on a big giggle fest here with my girls. Uh, I'm not an expert. There's a lot. Of, I own my mistakes. Uh, and yeah. I, it's, uh, I think a lot of, of what is in the book is, it's okay, honey. I'm almost done. Um, I think it's really important that you don't see me as an expert. You know, I look like the, the front cover looks like pretty cool. I'm like, you know, in the middle of nowhere with a camera on my shoulder, <laughs> but you can't be an expert of every single culture. That's so true. go, go in, um, and own your mistakes. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, have not even gotten to apologize face to face to some of the people that I basically apologize to in this book. I'm very sure. grateful to people who extended me grace because yeah. we need it. Yeah, we all need it. So I've got one final question for you before I let you wrangle the um, free-for-all girls who are enjoying their cookies. Um, this is a question that we always ask here at Have Hope Will Travel, and you can interpret it in the context of the conversation we've been having, or you can take it a totally different direction. <clears throat> what do you wish everyone knew? It's a good one. Um, I do wish everyone knew that they don't have to know it all mm. to be to put themselves in a position that's uncomfortable. you And I also wish people knew that they need to make themselves uncomfortable to learn. Sure, that's good. That's really good. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on Have Hope Will Travel today, for getting to share your insight, what you've learned so far and what you're still learning. And um, we appreciate your time and we will make sure to check out your book. Thank you. Cool.
If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, make sure to check out Crossing the Divide. You can find it at jessica-stone.com. I would love it if you would leave a rating, leave a review, share the podcast with a friend, subscribe at katieaxelson.com. It's how you'll make sure that all the future episodes head straight to you. We've got a lot of traveling coming. New friends, new stories, new opinions, new perspectives. My friend, know that you are blessed, know that you are loved, know that you matter, and I miss you dearly. I'll see you again in two weeks.